Hey all you cats and kittens. Sorry, I finally finished watching Tiger King. If you like, we can spend a whole lot of time discussing my thoughts on the parallels of Joe and Carol to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, but I'm guessing that's probably not why you're here. This week on the One Simple Question podcast, I found time to pester yet another psychology PhD student, Emily Sands. Emily works in a research lab here in London and covers a really unique side of psychology. She and I got into the details of what it means to learn at a distance. That is, given our current lockdown, does that even work? And how important are things like body language, eye contact, and tone when it comes to absorbing knowledge? As you can guess from my tone right now, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Emily gave me a peek into her research and the experience she's had as a teacher, while also weaving into the conversation a unique knowledge of just how somebody can learn with the best effort. Hi there. Uh, how is your day been? It's good. I'm just getting you know everything situated on my desk to kind of start working this afternoon in my house, which is a new experience. For everybody listening, and just to understand a little bit more about you, could you tell us your name, where you're from, and why are you working in your house? So my name is Emily Sands. I am actually originally from South Florida, but spent most of my adolescence in Seattle and my 20s in San Francisco and New York, and now I live in London. I am working from home because we are in isolation due to the COVID-19 virus, and I just like everybody else, unfortunately, is required to stay home to stay safe. Yeah, I know it well. Uh, The line that I've been using is that none of us are really working from home, but that we're just forced to be home and trying to work. I think that's Uh, fairly accurate. What is your job that you can do from home? What is it that you do? I am actually currently a PhD student. I'm in my final year. So actually this year, my formal PhD ends in June. I mean, I can work from home because I have a lot of things that I have to write, but working from home is really difficult in the educational world, especially when you're doing experiments and research. And I'm a social psychologist and I study perception. So a lot of my research actually takes place in labs and also in acoustic chambers. So unfortunately, those things do not exist in my house. So I'm kind of trying to figure out ways to do online experiments instead. I'm assuming that your university overall is closed. And so the labs that you have and all the spaces that that you're used to being in are completely left alone. You said you're researching perception from a psychological perspective. Can you break that down a little bit more? Let me understand what that is. Sure. So I basically study how people interact with one another. So I particularly look at perception and what aspect of perception I look at is actually how we perceive one another through the voice. So my work really is trying to understand what acoustic measurements, so things like decibels, beats per minute, um, shimmer, and other sort of like high test acoustic variables really sort of map out the way that we create meaning in our tone. So it's not what people say, but rather how people say it. So for example, if I said to you, I'm going to go walk the dog, and then I said to you, I'm going to go walk the dog, you would get a very different meaning 
out of those two sentences. So we're basically trying to figure out what are the acoustic measurements that are associated with things like personality traits and emotions. How does someone sound charismatic? How does someone sound empathetic? How does someone sound intelligent or competent? And the idea is if we can understand how these are expressed, then we can sort of map out these trait concepts and then actually recreate them. Eventually, the idea is, is that we'll be able to recreate them for things like making synthetic voices more human. Why would we want to do that? What's the application of making a synthetic voice sound more human besides maybe my Google Home sounding a little less robotic? So there's a lot of interesting applications out there that we're currently looking into. So we just applied for an NHS grant for an AI chatbot that specifically works with the elderly in creating companionship. There's a lot of loneliness that goes on in care homes. And our goal is to make an avatar essentially that can help someone feel more socialized. The idea of creating an avatar that's more interactive and has the ability to sound humanistic allows someone to feel more connected to the avatar itself. There's other things that we're doing as well. So for example, we're trying to recreate the doctor-patient relationship. Technology is becoming a huge part of allocating really basic menial tasks to chatbots. So scheduling, giving someone a test result that obviously isn't, you know, a bad one, a blood test, something like that. So it just makes healthcare more efficient. And the more human we can create it, the more interactive. So for example, we can also read a trait. So we know if someone calls in to a health chatbot and sounds upset, the chatbot can respond appropriately. So there's two different components here. We can recreate the voice But in the same breath, we can also understand the voice more to help. I have a couple of questions on this, but I want to obviously dive into other bits of your life and and being a PhD student out here. From the voice tone perspective, do you ever consider or worry that somebody would want to use your technology in, in maybe a weird way? Like, I would love to be able to fake something that somebody said that's important or famous Uh, but put actual realism behind it so that I could convince people of its authenticity. In science, we are continually looking at the ethics of the research that we're doing. And this is always really important. And a huge part of our research is kind of coming together as a cohort and as a team and kind of deciding, okay, what are the potential applications for this? And can we make a list of the positive and negatives? And what are the likelihood of these things sort of occurring? I think generally speaking, and unfortunately in a lot of science, we are continually deciding between these two dark and light identities of what our research can do. I think that at this particular juncture, obviously all the things that I'm talking about are futuristic. Like these are technological advancements that we would, that we could imagine occurring with the data that we have. Does it mean that I shouldn't find out how the voice sounds and what makes us more socialized and why can we understand each other in a specific way and understand the meaning of what we're saying? I think the answer is no. Can the application potentially be used in negative ways? Yes, I do think it could if it ever got to that stage. But I also think it could be used for really, really good things. And I think those things generally outweigh the negative. Got it. Going back to your PhD student experience and your job right now, I'm curious, do you teach at all? Are you a teacher's assistant? Are you running courses or anything like that? 
as a PhD student, generally people are encouraged to be uh, TAs or they call them in the UK demonstrators. I've worked the last two years as a demonstrator, so essentially a teaching assistant. That means that I don't I don't do lectures, but we have the most contact, the day to day contact with the students, and we basically run the small groups that really are in the most contact with the students and create the day to day lesson plans, as well as grading, as well as being the first point of contact for questions and answers and kind of creating that learning environment. And I taught uh, experimental psychology one, experimental psychology two, and I also teach research projects. So I have a bunch of master's students who actually work on my research and they get graded on it. And that's a big part of their grade. And unfortunately, that was the class that was the last thing that they were going to do before they were taking their finals and it completely ended. What does that mean for their grades? Um, I mean, generally, it's been a complex process in how the university has tried to figure out how to basically be fair in giving grades to students. And unfortunately, there really was no easy way to do that. So basically what ended up happening is classes that really couldn't be distance learning. So for example, the class that I was teaching is not a class that could be taught from the distance because they were required to conduct experiments and they couldn't do that anymore. So they've just basically gotten a grade for the first part of the class, which was basically just learning about how to conduct experiments. And many students were obviously upset about that because obviously being a student, your abilities are different. So maybe some kids were really good at taking tests. And now those kids who you know, were really good at doing write-ups and, you know, showing how they could do their work in the actual experiments will never really have that chance. Emily, can I ask, given that you are someone studying psychology as a PhD, you're understanding perception, you've had a teaching role in your past. There are a lot of people today who are trying to learn remotely. There's countless amounts of parents who are trying to help, but there's also, you know, the Zoom classroom as an example of what we hear. What are your thoughts on remote teaching? Like, is it just as good? Does it work? Is this going to be the new thing that we do where schools will just be distance learning the whole time? Or are we just stopgap measuring, hoping that we can just sort this thing out until we're all allowed to come together again? I think that there's some interesting points to what you just said. I think, you know, generally speaking, technology sort of gives us the ability to communicate from afar. And I think in that sense, it allows us to have this like basic connection with others that makes things really easy. So yes, we are connecting with other people in these sort of virtual scenarios. So in that sense, it's an amazing tool to have at our disposal. In terms of it actually becoming the way of the future and the way that education is given to students and young people, I definitely have a few issues with that. We have to be really careful about actually understanding the importance and the dynamics of the social connection and what actually lacks in in a Zoom context, especially in a Zoom context where it's not a one-on-one scenario, but you're trying to connect with a large group of people. And I think although we have this connection, all of the sort of intricacies that really connect us socially are totally not there. For example, you're still basically alone in a room and you're talking to someone who's also alone in a room. 
So that physicality of actually connecting to someone and understanding, you know, some of the nonverbal communication sort of things that we go through. So eye contact, hand movement, like you're not really seeing my hands right now. And the importance I'm putting on, you know, certain words that mean something to me. Or for example, you know, just realizing if someone's interested or not in what you're talking about becomes really difficult. You know, there's not that social motivational factor that happens in a Zoom meeting because people have the ability to seem like they're connected, but really aren't. Basically, a good learning experience is one where a student can master new knowledge and skills, which, you know, obviously Zoom allows us to do. But in that, it's like critically examine assumptions and beliefs. And this is usually done by engaging and collaborative quests for personal and and wisdom associated with this like holistic kind of learning. And then, you know, there's also this things that Zoom doesn't do at all, which is connect us in terms of the sensory sort of aspect of the physicality. So the ability to see and to feel and to hear peers and this reassurance that occurs in this peer contact. And we call that the hidden curriculum. It's about the exchange of dialogue. It's about the exchange of being able to create new friends. It's about the exchange of understanding how to have a a good argument, having different experiences coming together and creating this like whole entire knowledge set that completely is lacking in this Zoom context. What do you think from your opinion we could do to make distance learning easier right now, maybe more effective? The way that I think about this is from what you've just said, the having interactions really important, having that motivation, having contact is important. A lot of students out there have their parents who are home a lot more. So in my mind, there's some role that a parent could play. But what are the tips given that there's not really any other options at the moment? I think that teachers need to get really creative with how they interact with students and in some way try to recreate the same sort of environment that a student has when they are in a classroom. These are things like, you know, not just lecturing, but... Maybe, you know, creating a lesson plan where the students are required to, you know, come with a question and the students have to answer it. I think there are really creative ways to make students feel engaged. I'm from a higher education standpoint. I mean, I can't even imagine the difficulties young children have with engaging in something like Zoom and how parents get their students to engage, especially when, you know, teachers have a special skill. It's not just something that we learn overnight how to do. And I know even just speaking from my my sister's perspective, she has two young kids. Getting her kids to engage is one of the most difficult parts because that's not her job. That's not what she knows how to do. But I do think making things interesting and as sociable as possible is incredibly important. Not just use this as a platform where a teacher is just lecturing or where students actually feel like maybe there's a chat room where they can go and ask questions specifically about what they just learned. So there's always like this interactive socializing component that students aren't just being felt like they're being talked to. Because I think that that in itself is incredibly isolating. If you can't ask questions, if you can't be involved in the moment, if you can't be involved in the dialogue of your own learning, then we're really missing this like very essential component. I knew people who were homeschooled I have friends who are teachers. I would not say that in my experience of interacting with both of those people that everything was necessarily as buttoned up in their lives as they would like. The teachers were definitely underpaid. The students who were homeschooled lacked some basic social skills. 
even when you got into university level, it became pretty apparent when we were all doing these little projects and interactions, how much someone could work independently. On the other side of what you just said, and imagine all this stuff is done at some point and we're back to school the way that we expect to be. Would you consider the idea of homeschooling to be something just to fully avoid in the meantime to make sure that people have that like forced interaction because it's so necessary? I, you know, I was like talking to some of the students um, recently who I'm fairly close with. I think the hardest part for them is the motivation, as I said before. But the environment, too, is so difficult that they feel like they can't learn in it. And I do think that there's something to be said about maybe this time also like learning other things that you can do in the present moment, partaking in more creative activities at home, doing things that actually might enlighten you or, you know, just make you a more holistic human being. I think that we're so obsessed with like continuing exactly the norm and doing what is. And maybe that's actually the problem in the moment is maybe we should take this time to actually look at different endeavors. So many of my students, you know, they don't do anything but school. They're so stressed all the time. You know, they have a lot of other things going on. And I think like, you know, mental health issues and all these things, it's actually a really good time to look at that. Teachers being teachers. I also think that teachers, of course, generally don't get the credit they deserve. And I think, unfortunately, I still don't think that they're getting the credit that they deserve, even in this heightened moment. I, you know, there is an op-ed article in the New York Times that specifically said like, well, why don't we just always have it like this? Taking out the teacher's actual job, which is engaging students and getting them involved and interested. And as you even said, like teaching social skills, how to interact with students. Homeschooling is an interesting concept that I don't necessarily think is a great thing. I think if there's a specific issue with your child and that's an, and that's a required option, then fine. But I think like holding your children out of social situations is very detrimental to their ability to understand how to socialize. You know, social skills are something, as you said, that are sort of learned in these situations. And I think that from a young age to where I'm at right now as a teacher teaching, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, skill levels are built upon. They don't just happen. And you have to start from the beginning and those things happen in these educational settings. I hope that answered Uh, the question. (laughs) You definitely did. Uh, I definitely put you on the spot a little bit with some of the teacher related questions. I think you have a unique perception by studying perception and, and tone and then knowing how school works at, at a higher education level. It's just not often that you get a chance to talk to someone with both sides of that coin. Back to the lockdown and to yes. our quarantine lifestyle that we have now. I have a question on your research and I'd, I'd love to hear what you think your research could do. Imagine we had fast forwarded all your research and all the studies to the point where in February when we were getting locked down, you guys were like, in market ready to go and could have released this slew of functionality or products that could have helped, what would be the things that your research could be helping people with right now? I am not exactly sure the implementation of my research in particular, but in terms of health related uh, things that are going on in the world, I do think that one of the things that we're really trying to understand more is the doctor patient relationship. So a lot of our work actually is health related we call this dehumanization. So doctors go into something like a surgery where they have to perform what would be considered very antisocial behavior, cutting a person open. And then they basically have to come back out into a waiting room and re-engage and humanize the people who are in the room and talk about their significant other in a very emotive way. 
And that process, that neurological process is actually incredibly taxing. So this process that doctors go through every day, 20, 30 times a day sometimes, actually really creates what we call burnout. So one of the main things that we were kind of looking to do is we were looking for a way to help doctors to take away some of the more menial tasks and easy tasks. So they had essentially more cognitive space to deal with these larger social issues. So starting from something dehumanized to humanizing, we could take things out in a certain way where they would still be doing their jobs and people would still feel like they were connecting with their doctor personally in a very, you know, abstract way. So this is where we kind of decided to do voice research. So how can we use a doctor's vocals to express something without them actually having to interface with their patients? So that could be incredibly helpful in things like, you know, helping the NHS, for example, just making chatbots more humanized, more connected to people so that they, you know, don't feel like calling in and asking a question isn't worth their time because they're only going to be talking to a machine or call centers, how to help, you know, people who are dealing with people who are stressed out all the time actually not have to emotionally engage with those people but to also at the same time help those people perceive that they are emotionally engaged. You know, when we say it like that, that doesn't sound nice because it's essentially what we're doing is we're creating a perception that isn't actually there. But if you think about it, we do this all the time. And if we can alleviate things so people can do a better job and people feel like the job was done well, then we believe that that's actually quite helpful. Oh, and then the other thing we're doing is the elderly home chatbot. When people are incredibly isolated at this time and they can't see their family, even when they are seeing their family less, they have connection to something. We're doing a dog chatbot. So we're essentially uh, making a dog have humanistic attributes in, in the voice. So they feel connected, um, but obviously we're not recreating a human. So we feel like ethically that's slightly better. Yeah, I was going to say that seems like a very uh, interesting line to have to toe with regards to the ethics of providing someone hospice type care uh, yeah. with your technology. Well, most of the people that we are working with aren't in hospice. They're just in, they're in elderly homes for whatever yeah, reason. Sorry. But no, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that that would be appropriate for hospice care, but you know, just for simple connections. We almost kind of thought of it as like a the new age Tamagotchi. They care for it. It allows them to interact with something. There's games that are involved while also telling them, hey, it's time for you to take your medication or hey, there's an activity in the care home that you could partake in that would be really fun and would like fit your personality. It's interacting and helping kind of actually propel socialization and help also with health tasks that can be delegated to something that doesn't need to be human. If I had to ask what your mission statement of your research is, like if you had to give us the the one single sentence, two sentence version of why you do this research and what your goal of it is, I'm I'm not imagining this is going to be like the academic paper type title where there's like a lot of words yeah. none of us understand, but something that I guess people would be able to latch onto. I think that we take the voice for granted and the power that it has. I think the voice is an incredibly powerful tool and it's an instrument that we have that we don't utilize because we don't consciously think about how we're using our voice. And the more that we understand how to use a tool that we have at our disposal, the better that we can ultimately communicate with people. For us, you know, that's the psychological perspective of it. The implementation of it has many different possibilities, but for me, it's just understanding the power of the voice. I think that would be my my tagline. 
That's a really good tagline for a podcast where everybody will just be hearing your voice as well. <laughs> yes. And also, that's really interesting, too. I mean, you sometimes you hear your own voice and you're like, oh, my gosh, is that what I sound like? People spend so much time in powerful positions, actually, with voice coaches or even actors spend a lot of time with voice coaches, like creating these identities, these new voices. And essentially, this is just a more scientific understanding of that. So, you know, what is it about tone that makes me sound smart or not smart or charismatic or not charismatic or empathetic as a doctor or not empathetic? Because not all of these things are just easy for people. And if we can understand them, then we can all have the ability to communicate better. I'm like flashing back to a time when I was in med school ages ago and they taught us a little bit about this, not to the degree that you are researching, but just understanding what doctor-patient relationships were like and bedside manner and how obvious it was that so many doctors now just had no idea how to speak to a patient and the ability to say all of the scientific words in a really, really quick jargony manner does not make a patient feel better, even though you've explained yourself perfectly. No, exactly. And I think, you know, that's the important, that's actually why I started doing this is because a long time ago when I was a kid, I had a horrible interaction with a doctor who like just did not understand how to communicate to a an adolescent. And it totally freaked me out. And I think that people have really bad experiences with with doctors, and then they don't go to a doctor, which in itself is, you know, a horrible outcome of a scenario that could totally have been altered. And, you know, we've also thought about making biofeedback mechanism, a vocal biofeedback mechanism where a doctor can actually learn how to use their vocals through a machine that basically teaches them, okay, this is what empathy sounds like. So, you know, when a patient needs me to sound empathetic, I can essentially recreate this. So it is something that we think can be taught. This is always fascinating to talk to you about when we first met and we got to talking. I think it was one of those conversations that we could have kept going for a while, but we were in a very loud, booze-filled experience that I hope we can all get together and do that again sometime. Can I ask a question that everybody is getting asked at this stage of these episodes? And it's really simple. But I'm just curious, what are you looking forward to once this is all done? What is the thing that you're excited about when lockdowns are lifted, quarantines are lifted, planes are going, whatever it is? You know, I think it totally is connected to my work. It's just being social, you know, really having that physical contact with other people, being in a situation, you know, where there's a vibe and like there's reason to be there and like you're, you know, exchanging information in this conversational way and like learning new things you know, being isolated, sometimes I'm like, okay, so I'm going to literally do the same thing I do every single day. (laughs) There's no novelty in this experience. And I think, you know, human beings, we really, we really crave novel social experiences. I feel like it must always sort of be along those lines. Yeah. Having like a beer with friends, (laughs) something as simple as that, that I used to take for granted. It seems that human connection seems to be, which is both very warming to me and indicative of the situation that we're in. It seems to be what people think that they're going to jump back into most, which I really like. Um, Yeah, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me on this. Thanks for walking us through so much information as usual. (laughs) You You have an abundance of knowledge and I'm always fascinated to hear all of it. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. I enjoyed it. That was Emily Sands, a PhD candidate at UCL, researching the intricacies and secrets of tone. Tone is one of those things in our digital world that gets lost really easily. I remember this sketch on a show, Key and Peel, from ages ago. 
about how a text thread can be misconstrued so badly between two people that one side thinks they're having a fight and the other side is chuckling in a bar. In these times of countless Zoom conferences, phone calls, WhatsApp threads, group texts, house parties, distance classrooms, and everything in between, maintaining a semblance of human connection is key. It isn't easy, certainly not convenient, but after some practice, maybe it will become more natural. I hope you're safe out there, and wherever you are, I hope you have someone to talk to. Maybe you want to commiserate, or maybe you just need to catch up. Either way, it's a really, really good time to connect with somebody. That's it for today's story. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get the latest updates anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment and you're feeling generous, please leave a review. I'd really appreciate it, and it helps me understand how to make this show even better. For more info on me and this concept, you can visit our website at onesimplequestion.co. One Simple Question is hosted by me, Abhishek Lahoti. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you tune in again soon, and bye for now.